A few years back, my friend Justin Warner from Food Network moved out to South Dakota. He opened a ramen joint, and he is always posting pictures of all the great food he's not only cooking, but eating all over South Dakota. He's always telling me to come visit. And you know, one of the best ways to experience a new place is to eat your way through it. But it's equally important to live your way through it, too. And when you summer in South Dakota, you can fill up on all the lake days, hikes, rides, and small-town strolls that'll leave you with a regained sense of wonder and a hunger to do it all over again. See why there's so much South Dakota, so little time at Travel South Dakota. In my heart, I think I'm a New Yorker, but I'm not. Born and raised in L.A., so that meant that I was deprived from, like, bagels for a really long time. Good bagels. Yeah, for the longest time, my only exposure to bagels were, like, those frozen bagged bagels. Me too. It was all about the bagged bagels. My mom was a huge fan of cinnamon raisin, and we didn't have, like, our first proper freshly baked bagel until I was like in high school and my mom came across this bagel store and it was in this really industrial part of Van Nuys. The main thing I remember about this place and why I'll never forget it is that there was this story about how this woman drove over her husband in front of the bagel shop. And it wasn't an accident because the main detail I remember from the story was that she backed up and then drove over him again, then backed up and (laughs) drove over him again. And that's the place where we got bagels. Now, Every time we went there, we would think about that story. And it feels fitting because after I did a little deep dive into bagels, there's a lot of crazy stuff in the history of bagels. We're going to see a little bit of violence. Whoa. Violence? Murder? Bagels? Welcome to Deep Dish, the show where we do deep dives on dishes we love. And then we eat them. I'm Sola. And I'm Ham. We're married. And we're chefs. We nerd out on food together all day long. And we love learning about the stories behind different dishes and ingredients. Now we're going to do all that nerding out on this podcast. In each episode of Deep Dish, we'll deep dive into the story behind a food. Then we'll head home to our kitchen and see what we feel inspired to cook up. Today's story... Bagel Bosses and Death Threats. Ham, what's your favorite bagel order? Okay, so I have two bagel orders. One is like your everyday chill bagel order. My other one is like your special occasion splurge bagel order. Okay. So let's start with the basic one. Mm -hmm. I like a black seed bagel, which is a Montreal-style bagel. So fresh black seed everything bagel, scallion cream cheese. Uh Uh-huh. Now, we're going to get into the really fun order. Okay. Still a black seed everything bagel, but you pop on down the street to Russ and Daughters. Mm -hmm. You get yourself some sable, Mm -hmm. you get yourself some scallion cream cheese, and you get yourself a whole bunch of trout roe. Uh So that is the ultimate money is no object bagel. Wow. What about you? It's changed a lot over the years. So when I first came to New York, my favorite order was sliced, toasted, everything bagel with scallion cream cheese. But then I quickly learned that that was not okay. I remember the moment where you discovered that toasting a fresh bagel was a mistake. Well, it was mostly driven by shame. Like everyone in the line, everyone got mad at me. This was when we like were fresh to New York. If you do something like that, like order a toasted bagel in a bagel shop, like everyone in the whole building will let you know you're wrong. So now I no longer toast, not just because of the shame, though. Initially, I switched because of that. But then I realized it tastes a lot better because these bagels are so fresh. 
when you toast a fresh bagel, it's just out of the oven, you really lose the the magical contrast between the crust and the chewy inside. Everything just gets crunchy and dry. And then I think what I didn't realize, the real, real horror with a toasted bagel is then your cream cheese gets hot. Oh, yeah, and gets all goo and just squirts all over the squirts place. Squirts all oh, over the that's place. That's the worst. And it squirts so bad because the bagel is too crunchy. You bite into it. You got like kind of this warm cream cheese. It makes a mess. You can't eat that walking down the street. You definitely can't eat it on the subway. And the thing I'm seeing more and more in bagel shops is the phrase hand-rolled. This is actually a return to the old way of making bagels. Because nowadays, most bagels are being rolled by machine. It's like a return to a return to our bread roots. A return to innocence. A return to innocence. <laughs> Can we play that song? <laughs> Rolling a bagel is actually really difficult. I always thought you just make a roll and poke a hole in it. But actually what you do is you roll out a thin snake uh, and then you seal the two edges together by hand to form a bagel. Wait, uh, so you wrap this dough rope around your hand mm-hmm. and then you you press down to seal the seam? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's hard because like if you press too hard, you squish it. If you go too light, it won't close. Yeah, not that many people know how to do it. So I went to Brooklyn to find out more about it from someone who does it at Shelsky's Brooklyn Bagels. Hey, how are you doing? Hi. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Sorry, my name? hand's a little sugary. Steve, Steven. What's and I met salt? Steven Natali. So how did you get into bagels? Me? Yeah. My father owned a bagel store for 27 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, at 17, I, I left high school. It wasn't for me. And uh, I got my GED, and I started working for my father. And I said, you know, Dad, I want to learn how to roll bagels. Because that's a skill. That's a real skill. I was young at the time, and it probably took me six months, but it wasn't like every day I was training, you know? I was helping customers, and then like, okay, it's dead, go go in the back and learn, and piece by piece, I picked it up. <clears throat> now it's like, I'm a robot for bagels, you know? Do you do like- Steven works every day at Shelsky's. He gets in around 4 p.m. after the store closes and rolls bagels until about 11. So you're just here alone? Uh, yeah, so. I just listen to podcasts or I watch a lot of video essays of like film analysis. And it's I'm a nerd. Video game no, analysis. You know, seven hours. While Steven's doing all that, he's making bagels. Bagel dough is different from any other bread dough. It's really low hydration, and that's why it bakes up so chewy and dense instead of light and fluffy. He takes this like really stiff dough, but he manages to like stretch it and roll it and put it together as if it was like clay. It's got to be at like 50 pounds of dough. It's oh, wow. it's like you can really hold it in your arms like a dead body. <laughs> okay, so it's like a, a dead body's worth of dough that he puts on this very small table. And then he, he starts rolling it into a snake. Yeah, it's like cylindrical, right? It's even. It's all even. And then once he gets this like snaking piece that comes off of the bigger piece of dough... He wraps it around his hand. Big mm-hmm. hand, so it's it's fitting, but it's not stretched, right? I roll forward, and I just wrap it around. So it wraps around his hand. Then he puts his palm down and pushes in one push, and then rolls it against the counter to fuse the two ends together. And you roll forward, and there's your seam. He makes it look easy, but it's actually really difficult to fuse the two ends of the snake together just right to form that circle. 
it's like it's like Goldilocks. You push down too hard mm-hmm. and you'll flatten it. You push down too lightly and it won't fuse and they'll just come apart. You got to hit it just right. Exactly. And then once that's done, the bagel goes onto a tray. Like my friends used to make fun of me. They're like, oh, you, your job's a joke. You know, it's, it's easy. I'm like, all right, come on, let's go. <laughs> I bring them in the kitchen. I'm doing like, you know, three minutes basically I could do a board. They can't make one in, uh, you know, five hours, right? That's 30 bagels, right? For one board? 35. 35. Depends on the place also. You have those places where they do the humongous one-pounders, and so, you know, I could uh-huh. do a bag in about, I love that job, it's only 10 minutes. <laughs> You're done, but those bagels are terrible. And so he's pretty much portioning, like, by eye. It's totally eyeballed, but they're all exactly the and same. And they're all exactly the same, doing that. With a super stiff dough, with just one roll, is really tough as well. Well, Stephen, the whole time he kept like, he's very humble, and he's like very much like, whatever, I just roll bagels. But it kind of gave me Jiro dreams of sushi vibes. Put some music on in the background. You're good. The radio. And nowadays, there's very few people who can do what he's doing. So it's very in demand. Here's Peter Shelsky the owner of Shelsky's Brooklyn Bagels, where Steven works. Steve's not uh, your normal roller. Rollers tend to be really temperamental people. Um, and I think you, you, can speak, you can speak to this. And, and, and the, reason, the reason they're so temperamental is because, like, like he said, he wanted to learn a real skill. Well, these guys know that they've got a real skill, and they also know that bagel owners don't know how to roll, right? I mean, I, I, I can't roll. So they hold it over your head. They, they hold it over your head, and they yeah. can and they can they can mess with you in in a multitude of ways, right? They can start rolling the bagels just a little bit bigger and mess with your yield, and then oh. they can get out of the store earlier because you know. Whoa! They, that reminds me of oyster shuckers, like really good oyster shuckers who can just like shuck an oyster in their hand in one motion and really do like dozens of oysters back to back without even blinking are like three times the cost of a line cook just because it's a skill that no one else in the building has. But I feel like he doesn't he doesn't have like that temperamental thing about him because his dad owned a shop. So he he knows what it's like to be on the other side. Yeah. It's also fun to meet someone who has dedicated their whole life to a skill because you don't see that a lot. A lot of people jump around from one thing to another, but he's been doing this like pretty much his entire adult life. Even though most bagels today are made with machines, the people rolling them by hand are using a skill that's been preserved through generations. In fact, in the early days of the industry, bagel makers literally fought to preserve the traditional ways. I talked to somebody whose family has a long history in the bagel business. Jason Turbo is a journalist and author. Mostly, he writes about baseball, but a few years ago, he started getting interested in the story of his grandfather and great-grandfather, who made bagels in New York City, baby. His great-grandfather's path to bagels starts in a pretty unexpected way. He was a gunrunner for the Mensheviks in Ukraine, who were political opponents of the Bolsheviks. He was very politically active. He was arrested at some point, and before he could go on trial, he was absconded out of the country to a boat in Italy that took him to New York. A few years before Jason's great-grandfather made the journey from Eastern Europe to New York, the bagel made the same journey. In the 1800s, throughout Eastern Europe, a lot of Jewish men became bakers because it was the only profession they were allowed to do. 
Jason's great-grandfather was a baker in Ukraine before coming to New York. My great-grandfather had not been a bagel baker per se, but he had been a baker. And he fell in with other bakers who were making bagels. And in the 1880s and the 1890s, as Jews immigrated to New York, they brought their baking and their bagels with them. And baking bagels looked a little different than it does today. Before the era of preservatives, the shelf life of a bagel was four or five hours. They would pop them out of the ovens, they would put them in baskets, and they would peddle them on the street. Um, and, and so that's what, that's what they did. They would suffer in these basements, and then they would, they would go, go sell them wherever they could. They would bake these bagels in basements, no ventilation. So it was really horrible conditions and terrible places to work. And those places were filthy. There are scathing industry safety reviews year after year after year. Roach infestations, rat infestations. Um, these bakers would work in, in rooms where the ambient temperature was, was up to 120 degrees. And, and they were known to strip down to virtually nothing in the dead of winter. You know something about that. I did do a lot of baking in a basement. I don't believe it was legal. It was completely unventilated. And the heat is bad enough, but then you get all this flour in the air that never goes away. And then you, you inhale so much flour that you develop this cough, like this permanent cough from the flour inhalation. Yeah, so if you work in a basement baking bread long enough, you're going to end up in an iron lung. It's very, very bad. And I'm sure that all these, uh, these guys, it must have been 100 times worse for them. Here's Jason again. And somewhere along the line, they got it in their heads that if the men baking these bagels, who had a very specific skill set, could band together, then they might actually affect some change in their, in their workplace. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. Um, as it turned out, my great-grandfather, Louis Friedman, was one of the founders of Union Local 338 in the 1930s. No way! Yeah, they had a really big impact in making sure that the bagel shop owners took care of their workers and that they played by the rules and they only employed bakers who were in the union. If you wanted to bake a bagel in New York City, you had to be a member of Union Local 338. Even bakery owners were not allowed to man their own ovens. This kept the bagel bakery owners kind of at the beck and call of the union. And, and the union bakers were really the only people who knew how to make what we consider now a real bagel. What sticks out to me was that even the bagel shop owners couldn't make the bagels. That's so scary yeah. to, to have a business where you're fully reliant on, on yeah, another person's skill set. Especially a small business, because mm -hmm. like when we had our restaurant, we did everything. We baked the bread ourselves. You made the cheese yourself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we, were, we sanded the floors, uh, did everything from install the toilets and lighting to make the ice cream and syrups for the cocktails. We didn't even buy outside sodas. Yeah, uh-huh. We made our own soda. We outsourced nothing. And that's why we went out of business. <laughs> <laughs> These bakers, too, they were very highly skilled. Because I don't think that we think about bagels as being like this artisanal thing, like a croissant. Mm -hmm. But as we heard from Stephen earlier, it requires a lot of expertise. Um, at that time, these union bakers could roll one bagel per second. Wow. They were like wow, machines. Wow, that is amazing. And then they boil the bagels. This is a really important step, and it's what makes bagels different from bread with a hole in it. Boiling a bagel is what gives it its shiny crust and chewy interior. The starch on the exterior dough gelatinizes when you boil it, and this kind of seals it so when the bagel hits the oven— it doesn't, like, expand as much. It stays really nice and dense. Oh, so it's kind of like if you want really good roast potatoes, you boil your potatoes first 
to pre-gelatinize the starch on the outside. And then when you roast it, you get a really crusty, crunchy brown crust. And you still maintain the fluffy interior because that pre-gelatinization keeps the moisture locked in. So that's why you can keep that chew. And it's why they're so smooth as well, because that boiling and that pre-gelatinization means that when it goes into the oven, the surface doesn't bubble as much, and you get this really nice, smooth... Even sheen. In the 1950s, life was really good for a bagel maker. They had, like, secret techniques that they would keep within each other. The only way you learned how to make a bagel like that is if another union baker taught you. So it really kept their jobs safe. There were a lot of unionized jobs during that time. Automakers, steel workers, rail workers, who built middle-class lives for their families. They had paid vacations, they were driving nice cars, they were sending their kids to, to colleges and universities. And it was fine because the bakery owners were making money hand over fist. This was, this was a kind of an exploding industry. Bagel shops were popping up every place. Um, so everything was copacetic, money was flying around, and that's the point at which the mafia decided to get involved. Wait, what? This is like a secret mob story? I did not see that coming. Bagels plus secret mob story. Yeah, I mean, they were they were doing really well. I, I can't imagine, like, nowadays a bagel shop being so profitable that... <laughs> that the mob wants to get involved. But, you know, they saw good business, so they wanted to get in there. So one of the biggest organized crime families in New York, the Genovese family, opened the Bagel Boys shop with non-union bakers. It was in Brooklyn, in union territory. That pissed off the union. Yeah, the mob was probably like, oh, these these soft, doughy bakers, we can definitely intimidate them. I feel like these guys, they're not yeah. worried about yeah. Local 338, yeah. um, but the union was not having that. You know, I, I heard stories of bakeries that went non-union early on. These, these union bakers would break in in the middle of the night, spike the dough with so much yeast that it literally filled up the entire room. <laughs> And, and would harden so quickly that they would they would have to take chisels to it, and it would take weeks to clean that stuff up. They would steal delivery trucks. They were known to blow up delivery trucks, not with people in them, but, but anything to hamper non-union bakeries. The putting extra yeast in the dough is, is a really funny, like, baker attack. It's a good prank on so many levels. But the most common way they fought back is how unions fight now, which was to pick it. And that's what they did to the Bagel Boy store. Wait, they picketed the the mob store? Yeah. They would set up tables outside the bakery. They would stock abundant free product and pass it out in in whatever quantities that passersby would ask for, which decimated business. Like, why why go into a bakery to, Mm -hmm. to buy bagels when people are giving them away on the sidewalk? The way they fought back was really smart. Yeah, the union just wanted the Bagel Boys to use union bakers. They were fighting to keep that union territory sacred. The mafia responded in mafia ways. And about a week later, a a member of the union's executive board received a phone call from an associate of Bagel Boys issuing a threat not only for the executive, but the executive's wife and children. Mm. It it wasn't enough to get the union to cave, but it was enough to inspire them to uh, agree to a meeting. The mob made a number of increasing offers. They started off by saying, we respect your right to enforce contracts with other bakeries, but we don't need to do that. The union said no. They said, well, how about we sign your contract and you don't enforce it? The union said no. They said, how about we give you $10,000 to make this all go away? The union said no. 
I mean, the, the local 338 wanted union bakers inside that shop and, and nothing less. The union kept picketing. They kept passing out free bagels. This is like a lot of dedication, you know, because they're baking these bagels. Yeah, it's a lot of work. You're giving away your main yeah. product. Yeah, they weren't getting intimidated. One of the things I love about this union is that it was founded by Ukrainian immigrants who were tough as nails. Like, they, they went through so much, so much hatred in their homeland that, it, it, you know, it forced them into America. They, they weren't, weren't going to take grief from anybody. They, were, they weren't about to bend for anybody. Like, the mafia had encountered so many victims who just folded immediately, and these guys weren't folding. They weren't folding at all. And so the, the mafia got out of the bagel industry, presenting a decided win for these Ukrainian immigrants. Wow, that's like a great David Goliath story. Yeah, they won. They, they won, won that battle. But there was some other stuff happening that they weren't noticing. Oh, no. It turned out that this run-in with the mafia was actually a small battle in the bagel wars. That fight distracted the Union from what was happening across the river in Connecticut. So coming up, how a Connecticut bagel company became the true enemy of the bagel union. Things are getting intense. Time to cook up some advertisements. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels, and you will get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria Hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool... Almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the Choice Hotels take care of all the other stuff, too. But, I mean, a pool is a great start. Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. The weather's warming up. Have you nailed down your summer travel plans yet? I can tell you, we're working on ours and things are booking up, which is why you should be thinking about Norwegian Cruise Line. They have been raising the standards of cruising for more than 55 years. Let me tell you, when you cruise with NCL, you get award-winning specialty restaurants, immersive entertainment, and the most thrilling experiences at sea. Now, look, one of the great things about cruises in general is that you can visit and explore all kinds of different destinations, all with the ease of unpacking your bag just once. But Norwegian Cruise Line... They take cruising to another level, and they take food to another level. With no set dining and entertainment times and no formal dress codes, you have the flexibility to design your ideal vacation. They have an incredible variety of truly authentic and fresh dining and bar experiences complemented by exceptional service. Listen to this. There are up to eight complimentary and nine specialty dining options per ship and up to 23 bar and lounge options. Come see why NCL's guest first philosophy means exceptional service and unforgettable memories. Book your next vacation at ncl.com. 
At Boar's Head, delicious is in the details, and you see that in their incredible selection of hummus flavors. Boar's Head hummus is expertly crafted to achieve the perfect balance of creamy texture and refined taste. You can taste those chickpeas, you can taste the tahini, you can taste a little bit of acidity. It's got it all. I especially love their roasted red pepper hummus made with fire-roasted peppers. You can even taste a little bit of that char. It's perfectly dippable. It's perfectly spreadable. This is the kind of thing you always want to have on hand in your refrigerator. Dip, scoop, spread, or smear Boar's Head hummus to your heart's content. Hummus so extraordinary, it can only be Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. Deep Dish is back, and I'm Sola. And I'm Ham. Hey, Ham. Did you know that I've got a cookbook out? Yeah, isn't it called Start Here? And isn't it a good place for up-and-coming cooks to start? And for people who've been cooking for a while, but they want to know more. They do. Some, a lot of people want to know more these days. And you know what? Start Here is a great place to start. There's science, there's technique, and it's available where books are sold. Check it out. Okay, back to bagels. By the 1960s, the bagel union had just defended their turf against one of the biggest crime families in New York. But the newest threat was coming from a totally different direction. A new bagel-making machine had just hit the market, and suddenly it became a lot cheaper to make bagels. And a bagel company in Connecticut, Lenders Bagels, invested heavily in these machines. By the 1970s, thanks to the bagel machines, Lenders became the largest bagel producer in the world. Oh, they because of these machines, they just took over the entire industry. Yeah, and here again is writer Jason Turbo. This was the dawn of preservatives. They were able to churn out bagels in, in 10, 100,000 times faster than, than the union could. With the preservatives, they could then ship them across the country. The union was powerless to stop any of this. Lenders were able to make the bagels faster, cheaper, 40% cheaper. That's a, that's a lot. Yeah, so they just totally took over the market. And not just the bagel machines, but they started using preservatives, which meant that these bagels could last on supermarket shelves. With these new machines making cheaper, longer-lasting bagels, more and more of the bagel shops opening up in New York were using non-union bakers. It became too much for the union to keep up with. So this was really squeezing out these union stores. By 1971, the union was half its original size, so it went down to 152 members. And then they were just fighting to survive. So they ended up having to merge with another local union. And that was the end of Local 338. They had to dissolve after that. Oh, that's sad. So they, they beat the mob, but then ultimately the machines were the end of them. Yeah. The machine also changed what a bagel is. They used to be small and really hard. But with the machine, it changed into this big, fluffy kind of like bread with a hole. Mm -hmm. So similar to what it is now. It so started so you, to get closer to the kind of bagels we have now for a couple of reasons. Like, the dough needed to be softer to work within the machine, but also the preservatives made it softer. And because it was going to a wider market, a softer dough just appealed to more people. These machines are probably why I was able to have bagels all the way in L.A. Yeah, and it's how I got bagels all the way in Doha, Qatar, where I grew up. Here's Jason again. It's a double-edged sword. I mean, lenders was instrumental in creating the bagel as a non-niche ethnic food. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's ubiquitous to Americans now. Before lenders came along, it was, it was strictly Jewish. Uh, up until the 1960s, every time the New York Times mentioned bagels, which was almost inevitably, you know, in, in a short item about labor fights, 
they would have no assumed knowledge that the reader knew what a bagel was. They would have to explain what a bagel was every time they mentioned it. The most famous instance being when they called it a, a donut with rigor mortis. <laughs> That's sad for donuts and for bagels. <laughs> so like we said, Jason's great-grandfather helped found the first bagel union. But Jason wasn't able to figure out if he was involved in any of these conflicts, you know, with the mob or with lenders. Louis never talked about any of that with his family. But bagels did become the family business. Louis brought his son, Seymour, into the union. That's Jason's grandfather. He worked as a bagel maker in Local 338 before moving across the country with his wife. Seymour opened his own bagel bakery in L.A. called Brooklyn Bagel Bakery. He ran it for 50 years, and it was known for a time as one of the best bagels in L.A. He was obsessed with bagels. He even had a license plate that read Bagel King on his car. (laughs) The Bagel King. Bagel King. Bagels were a big part of his life. They were at holidays, get-togethers, and even weddings. My mom's wedding pictures involve my father putting a mini bagel on her finger in place of a wedding ring. <laughs> Did he make that bagel that was on her finger? Absolutely. I, mean, I, I, don't, think, I don't think it was bespoke. <laughs> I think it came out of a big, a, a big bin of existing bagels, but he did make it. That is amazing. That is really sweet. I yeah. wonder if she got another ring after. That was like, no, that's it. I made that one. Uh-huh. I made it with my hands. Yeah. Jason says at first his grandfather was hand rolling all the bagels at his shop, but he eventually had to make concessions. They they got bagel machines simply for for numbers. You know, my uncle, who I've spoken with about this quite a bit, who took over the bakery when my grandfather retired. Um, freely admits the bagels aren't as good now as they were then. Bagels have gotten big and soft and squishy. That's not what the that, that's not the bagel that I grew up eating. A bagel was small and dense and chewy uh-huh. with a nice crust. Like so we set out to make that bagel and we had no idea how to do it. This is Peter Shelsky again, owner of Shelsky's Brooklyn Bagels. I wanted to talk to him because he's part of the new wave of bagel culture pushing back against these machine-made bagels that are everywhere now. In some ways, they're making bagels just like they did 100 years ago. But this is a new shop he opened in 2018, and he's doing a really cool blend of traditional and modern techniques. What are his modern touches? He's got a sourdough starter in there along with a little bit of commercial yeast. But it adds a little tang because Peter was talking about how a lot of bagels to his palate is a little bit sweet. Mm -hmm. So by adding a little starter, you get a little bit of tang, a little bit of depth, and that like yeasty... That is so smart. Yeah. So he gets, he still gets that dense, chewy texture with that tang. There are places where he innovates, like with the sourdough, but he also has a pretty strong sense of tradition. So cinnamon raisin took me a long time to like come around on. I, I when I first opened, I refused to sell them. I, I was like, no. And then, and I think it was it was Lewis, my business partner. He's like, dude, we're, we're in the hospitality business. Like you, that's what people want. I was like, but I, I'm fine. But I'm drawing the line there, you know. I, I didn't offer tomato if, if it wasn't in season for a while until I... What? I, like, yeah, I refused to put tomato on a bagel no, for years. No, people would be so mad. They were though. so mad. And, and finally I caved. Oh, this is definitely something we can relate to. When we had our restaurant, we made business decisions like that all the time. Like refusing to serve tomatoes too when they're out of season. Strawberries was another big one. We were a diner. So people want, like, melon in the morning. And we were like, no melon unless it's July or August. It's December. You want a, <laughs> you want a cantaloupe now? How go dare you? Go somewhere else. Uh-huh. And they did. They did. They did go somewhere else. <laughs> they all went somewhere else. So I was talking to Peter and watching Stephen roll bagels for a while at this point. 
And I was getting very antsy to get in there and roll some bagels myself. Oh, did you get a chance to make some bagels? I did make some bagels, yeah. You want to try? <laughs> Can I get in there? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, let me just, let me just, uh, like when you get to the end, there's like pieces. You know, like so the plan was he was going to show me how to make one, but it was kind of tough to pull him away. Really? All right, do you want to you wanna try? Yeah, I want to try. Oh, you know what? Actually, let me just get to here because you need some okay. room. I'm sorry, you okay. need some. You're going to no, need. No, it's okay. I feel like when the dough's in front of him, he gets in a trance and he he just he can't not roll. Wait, isn't it my turn? It's totally. Oh yeah, not now because I just incorporate. You're not gonna be able to do this. Let me give you. Let me get to. Like, oh, let me try one. And he's like, let me just finish this this chocolate dough. Yeah, yeah. You just like can't stop. You're so into this. What? Once you, once the dough's out, you just transform. Oh no, this is me all the time. You can ask this. <laughs> but like when he finally did slow down enough to show me how to do it, it's very there's a lot of details to it. It's very difficult. Do it at the same time, okay? Yeah, that's that's fine. It's a little small. Don't worry about it. It's all good. We'll do it together, okay? okay? All right. So there's your piece. Here's my piece, right? Okay. So here we go. We're rolling it out using my fingers, pressing lightly. One thing that I found interesting was the way he was doing it totally didn't work for my hands because my hands were like half the size mm-hmm. of his. He has like giant hands. Good bagel rolling hands. But he has good bagel rolling hands, like toned muscular hands. So he was able to roll the bagel just like even around like the fingertips, the four wow. fingertips and then push from there. But my hands are so small that even having it around across the middle of my palm. Wasn't enough. I'm using my fingertips like a rocking motion, right? From my fingertips to my palm, right? So you're coming up and over the dough. Yeah, up and over. What kept happening to me was the bagel was just like rolling all the way off my hand. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Let me see. All right, I guess we could work with that. No, we're going to have to work with that. (laughs) I don't think we have any other option. Uh, Can you use this bagel? Um, No. (laughs) (laughs) We couldn't use the bagel. When I saw Steven's bagels all baked, they definitely have like a artisanal hand-rolled vibe. Like every single bagel is a little different. Mm-hmm. You can see the twist. There's a little seam where the two ends come together. It's really cool. I feel like it adds a lot, the hand-rolling process. What I really want to know is, how does it taste? I'm glad you asked. Normally on the show we cook something, but bagels are something that are definitely better from a shop. So instead of cooking, we're going to do a bagel taste test. That's after the break. And now, a delicious word from our sponsors. I'm Sola. And I'm Ham. Welcome back to Deep Dish, our collaboration with our friends at the Sporkful Food Podcast. Check out The Sporkful's recent episode with Pete Wells, the New York Times dining critic. Host Dan Pashman goes undercover with Pete to find out what it's like for one of the highest profile restaurant critics in the country to dine out in secret in order to write a review later. That episode is up right now in the Sporkful feed. Get it wherever you got this one. So we're going to taste bagels through history. Okay, we're going to start with the Lenders bagel the frozen bagels that we grew up eating. I'm excited to try it now after all these years because I haven't had one since moving to New York. Probably last last frozen bagel I had was when I I was like 14. Okay. So these were frozen and you can tell they're still cold. (laughs) Can't wait to try these. Oh, they kind of look like 
white bread with a bit of a crust. And they're so teeny. They're really teeny. I remember them being larger, but maybe it's because I was smaller. Uh-huh. I can't help but notice that these bagels are dry. Yes, it, we don't have cream cheese. Or butter. We're going to do it very pure. Really get a taste of the of the crumb and the texture of the dough and all that, but like... We would never eat a bagel like this. I did not choose to do this. <laughs> All blame falls on the production the team. The production team thought that it would be, there would be more integrity in tasting dry bagels, and I think they just want to torture us. But, but let's, do, let's do this. Okay, so this is a Lender's bagel, slightly toasted, split in half, grab a half. It's so thin and small. It, it really just feels like a piece of toast. Mm-hmm. I don't hate it. Yeah, it's uh, it feel it does feel very nostalgic. Mm-hmm. There's this weird um, preservative aftertaste that is very nostalgic. Mm-hmm. That is part of the bagel flavor, like the frozen bagel flavor. I don't know if it's just because of the nostalgia, but like I just I want to make a little bagel pizza with that pizza bagels. Pizza bagel. It's the perfect bagel for a pizza bagel. Yeah. A lot of the times, if you try and make a pizza bagel with a good, quote-unquote, good real bagel. It's too hard to eat because it's so chewy and all your toppings just end up on your face mm-hmm. or on your lap, your mm-hmm. shirt. Maybe it's just me, but it's what happens every time. But with this, you still get a little bit of chew and you can make a clean bite mm-hmm. without really making a mess of yourself. So next, we're going to try a bagel from a pretty standard bagel shop in Manhattan. And these bagels are not hand-rolled. No, these are mechanically rolled but they're still like the New York style. That's a good bagel. Mm-hmm. Really nice chew, delicate crust on the outside. I was really skeptical about the everything flavor we would get from this bagel because it's very sparsely topped with the seasoning. I was surprised how much everything flavor I got from that considering how sparsely topped it is. Yeah, there's a really nice bit of salt and it brings everything forward, but I guess the main thing is good chew. Good chew. Nice yeah. and dense. And the the outside has that like glossy boiled bagel look. It, it's so different from the frozen one we just tasted. So this is mechanically rolled and you can tell there, there really isn't a seam at all. No. It looks pretty perfect. And then when you rip into it, the crumb is really tight and pretty even. Oh, no, no air pockets, mm-hmm. no, no bubblage. Mm-hmm. I think if I hadn't gone on this bagel journey and seeing how Steven rolls his bagels, I don't, I don't think I'd even notice. It's crazy. There's no seams. No, no seams at all. It's Machines. just this magical ring. Magical ring. Ma- magical ring of chewy dough. Mm-hmm. Now, the final bagel. We're going to taste the Shelsky's bagel, and it's, it's modern but also kind of from the past. So it's representing those bagels they made in the 40s and 50s, the Union bagels, hand-rolled, um, artisanal, each one's unique, but they've got their modern twist because there's a little bit of sourdough starter in there to change the flavor a bit. So I'm really excited to try this. Like, it's the future. It's the past. It's a Shelsky's bagel. Wow, it's a time. We're like going through a bagel time machine. It's <laughs> uh, yeah. really cool. I'm excited to see Steven's twist. Yes. The signature Steven twist. Okay. Ooh, look at that. Now that's the coverage I'm looking for. Very well covered in seeds. So this is the um, this is actually their Szechuan peppercorn and sesame, which I tried there and I, I loved it. So I'm really excited for you to taste this. And just by looking at it, it's so imperfect. It's, it's, it looks very hand rolled. Uh, the outer crust isn't doesn't have this like perfect 
clean, tight sheen to it. I also noticed that Shelsky's bagel is significantly darker than both Mm -hmm. the machine rolled and the frozen. Just feeling the outside, it's like really nice and crusty. Okay, now I'm going to rip Shelsky's bagel. Yeah, that was a really big difference. Huge difference. Wow. That was a struggle. Okay, let's get in there. Oh, and I got the piece. I got the half with the knot. Oh, yeah. Where it got rolled. I has the most pronounced chew Mm -hmm. of all the bagels we tried. Like you you feel it in your jaw, which is what I really want from a from a good bagel. Crust is more pronounced. You you hear a slight crunch when you bite into it. And I love the Szechuan peppercorn in there. It's like an unexpected numbness that you get from Szechuan peppercorn. I was surprised even by tasting the frozen one. There's no bad bagel. Like, I would be happy with all of these bagels. When you do it side by side, though, you know, it's obvious. But if I was, like, in the middle of somewhere with no bagels and I had a frozen bagel, I would be thrilled. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Frozen bagels are better than no bagels. What's interesting... Doing this progression, starting with the frozen, going to this, the machine rolled, and now Shelsky's like artisanal hand rolled sourdough. There's more contrast in texture as you go. I've, yeah. The first totally one's agree. a bit mealy and kind of the same all the way through. The second one, we have this crust and this chew, and now this final Shelsky's, the, there's a very pronounced crust. There's a very pronounced chewy middle. But I think it's interesting when you when you see where bagels came from. It's very obvious that this is not just bread with a hole in it. It has its own unique characteristics, this chewy interior, this crust. You have to fight with this bread. It's a bread made by hard people. Thanks to Jason Turbo and Peter Shelsky and Stephen Natali from Shelsky's Brooklyn Bagels. If you want to check out some behind-the-scenes photos from this episode, you can follow us on Instagram. I'm at Sola E. And I'm at Hamagram. You can also follow The Sporkful. That's at The Sporkful. This is our last episode of Deep Dish. For now. Whoa. So don't be sad. If you love this show, please go ahead and leave us a rating or review on the podcast app of your choice. And also tell all of your friends about it. All of them. Don't shut up about it. All, all. Every dinner party. Uh Every birthday party. Uh Every workplace meeting. Mm -hmm. Interrupt everybody to bring up Deep Dish. This episode was produced by Andres O'Hara with help from Dan Pashman and Emma Morgenstern editing by Tracy Samuelson Nora Ritchie and Camille Stanley with help from Tamika Weatherspoon and Josh Richmond sound engineering by Jared O'Connell Our executive producers are Dan Pashman Nora Ritchie and Colin Anderson Original theme music by Casey Holford and additional music from Black Label Music Deep Dish is a production of Sporkful Media and Stitcher Studios Stitcher Studios